You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with guests to discuss the role religion plays in people's lives, in our politics, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing Hasidic Jews who lead double lives. What does it mean to lead a double life as a Hasidic Jew? And why do so many stay even when they reject their community's teachings? Why, despite the presence of these double lifers, are some Hasidic communities flourishing? And what should we make of the recent success of Netflix's show Unorthodox about a woman who flees from a Hasidic community? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Ayala Fader, professor of anthropology at Fordham University. She is the author of the new book, Hidden Heretics, Jewish Doubt in the Digital Age, available now. And you can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming summer issue of The Revealer magazine out mid-July at therevealer.org. Thank you for joining us, Ayala. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Brett. Great. Excellent. So congratulations on your new book, Hidden Heretics. Uh, I received an advanced copy and devoured it and immediately emailed you because I wanted to chat about it. So you do a great job in the book of explaining and depicting some aspects of life in Hasidic communities in New York. So um, I'd like to just start by asking how you became interested in studying Hasidic Jews who lead double lives and connected to that, if you can say a bit about what you mean by Hasidic double-lifers, as you call them. Sure. So um, I had just finished my first book, Mitzvah Girls, which was kind of the opposite of Hidden Heretics, which was why uh, it's a book about why and how young Hasidic girls come to want to stay in their communities. Mm. And I thought I had one more article in me. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) as I started to do the research for that, it was on the recent Hasidic bloggers that I had not done any research with before, but that had had become much more well-known, and started to talk to a few people, I realized that um, the Hasidic community and maybe the ultra-Orthodox community more broadly was actually undergoing a huge change. And it was a very different community than I had studied, let's say, in the late 90s Hmm. for my first book. Um, And in fact, I was meeting with somebody to talk about my first book she had read it and she she was a community member and she wanted to go over it and as we were talking um, she started to describe um, some of the tensions around the internet she described a crisis of faith what they call a crisis of amuna um, and as I started to do more and more research I realized that there was this community of ultra-orthodox Jews who were still practicing in their communities, but had had um, some kind of deep transformation in terms of their belief. Hmm. And I, I knew I, I just had to investigate this. Second part of your question is, um, you know, who are people living double lives? Right, exactly. Um, yeah. People living double lives in general are ultra-Orthodox Jews who are generally married and with children. They're, most of the people I talked to were in their early 30s to mid-40s. Um, they were really deep within their communities in terms of family commitments. Hmm. But over a period of sometimes even 10 years or more, they had slowly come to lose faith 
in the sort of central tenet of ultra-Orthodox Judaism, which is that God gave the Jews the Torah at Mount Sinai and that the Torah is actually the word of God. Um, I discovered a whole continuum of people hmm. living double lives. There were some people who rejected that, some people who became atheists, some people who still believed in God but didn't believe in Hasidic Judaism, for example. So there was a, it's a really hmm. broad category. Right. Um, but they had a certain kind of loss of faith in the narrative that they had been taught as hmm. children and teenagers, but they were too um, connected to their families and too, um, I would say, committed to their families to just leave. And so they continued to practice publicly um, where they had to, but they actually began not only to believe differently, but they began to break many of the commandments first alone sometimes and then with mm. others as they began to meet people who were similar to them. And really technology, the internet, in particular social media, I had I learned was one of the ways that they began to build relationships with others and allowed a double life to be more of a possibility. It's always existed in ultra-Orthodox communities, but it was much more difficult and much lonelier, I think, hmm. before the internet. Right. right. That's interesting. So I want to definitely come back to the internet because it's central to your book and, and to explorations mm -hmm. of doubt. But I also, your mention of your, your first book, The Mitzvah Girls and, and women who, who stay and what they learn in these communities also makes me want to ask a question about gender and double lifers. I think to many outside observers, um, you know, Hasidic Jews are especially known for what they wear and then assumptions about uh, very strict ideas about what women can and cannot do, what men are supposed to do and not do, etc. So is there a way that gender shapes double lifers in terms of who is able to lead a double life or what they are able to do and not do? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, what was ironic to me was in my first book, I really only talked to women and girls. I had very little access to men. Hmm. For this project, I almost talked exclusively to men. Wow. And, and that was confusing to me. Like I kept wondering, I keep meeting many men who are living double lives. Where are the women living double lives? And what I learned over about five years of research was that in fact, women have many fewer options for living a double life. Part of the issue is the life cycle. When young men and women get married, usually 17, 18, 19, um, men's lives get much more um, open, they have more time, mm. they have much more independence. When women get married, they the opposite happens to them. Their lives get much more constrained. They're the they're the ones who are in charge of the home, they're supposed oh. to be at home, they're in charge of the children. Women often have less access to technology. Hmm. Um, they're, sometimes they're working, sometimes they're not. If they're not working and they're, they're staying at home with the kids, they don't really need to have a smartphone. Um, sometimes hmm. I found that women were less comfortable interacting um, in a kind of more public space, even of the internet, with men. Um, sure. they, they, were, they don't participate so much in the ultra-Orthodox public sphere, sphere and that carries hmm. over to the internet. And then even things like mobility, you know, in upstate New York, some Hasidic women are not allowed to drive, um, so that getting around is difficult. They can't really just easily go out at night. 
it's not that they're cloistered or anything, but but the issue of mobility is really different, and the issue of independence and who wants to know where you are and who's hmm. watching the kids. Right, right, right. Interesting. Not to say that women don't also have doubts. Sure. And after um, about a year or so, I did meet a number of double life women, most of whom were friends. I met like a whole friend circle. Um, and they had many of the same issues as men in terms of what prompted them to lose their faith. But often their reactions were different, which I found really fascinating, not across the board, but men were often devastated when they lost faith. They were they were deeply sad. Hmm. They felt like their whole explanation for the world was crumbling and, and their own kind of place as the leaders in that world um, and sort of the inheritors of this gift of Judaism was in doubt. For women, at least some, some were also deeply sad, but I also heard stories about anger, that they had been Hmm. um, convinced to participate in in certain parts of their lives. They might have wished to be more active in religious life, for example, but they couldn't, and they accepted that when they believed that the story was true, when the narrative of ultra-Orthodox Judaism was true, but when they began to doubt it, they also doubted the kinds of constraints on them. And so there were different emotional reactions sometimes too, as well as different ways that men and women with doubts were treated. Um, Hmm. Men with doubts were often more able to sort of stay as the leaders in their households, the religious and spiritual leaders in their households. Women who had doubts were often, more often, um, sent to or asked to consult with rabbis and therapists. And um, wow, yeah, so there were gender implications, although men were also sent to therapists sure. and rabbis. Sure. I mean, as I'm hearing you speak, one thing that's sticking out to me, and and this was true when reading your book, is this emphasis on, I think you're using the phrase, when they lose their faith or, you know, and when that sort of central thing falls apart. And it it strikes me because um, you reveal in the book that you grew up in a Reformed Jewish community, and and I did as well. And for me, you know, doubt was encouraged. It was a good thing, an important thing. Some might have said central to being Jewish. I can remember one rabbi saying something like, to be a good Jew, you need to believe in one God or fewer. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's a Jewish joke, like how do Jews answer a question with another question. Right. (laughs) Um, but, But your book makes clear that these, um, you know, this emphasis on doubt as as central to Jewish identity is not a universally shared Jewish value. So can you help explain for us why is doubt, which is part of your book subtitle, why is doubt such a source of concern for Hasidic Jews? So that's a great question. And and that puzzled me too, having grown up in a very similar community. Yeah. Um, So basically, I define two kinds of doubt. I define the kind of doubt that defines faith, meaning that doubt is a normal part of belief. It's a normal part of faith. And I would say most rabbinic leadership and of many kinds would say that it's normal to have doubts. And in ultra-Orthodox Judaism, that's also acknowledged, that it's very Mm. normal to have doubts, especially across the life cycle as you enter into different points Hmm. of of relationships and being but if you're an ultra-orthodox jew the doubt that defines faith 
means that you keep practicing religious Judaism despite your doubts. And that is the practice of keeping the mitzvot, of keeping the commandments, that actually will eventually restore your uh, faith. So it's that practice-based. Right. Um, and that's very different from Reformed Judaism, sure, actually. Sure, right. But the doubt that I was studying was what I call a life-changing doubt. Mm -hmm. And that's the doubt that actually disrupts religious practice. It's a doubt that's so profound um, and so maybe disillusioning that, that the practice no longer is able to be um, pursued. Sure. And so um, the first kind of doubt, the doubt that defines or refines faith, you know, rabbis and counselors told me they would just tell people, keep practicing and your faith will return. And for many, many people, that's actually fine. I learned, which I didn't know earlier, I learned that many teenagers have doubts hmm. and break tiny rules, ultra-Orthodox teenagers, and break tiny rules and kind of push the boundaries. But then usually by the time they get married, um, they're ready to be more serious about religious practice right. and they're able to put those doubts behind them. For the, the population that I was working with um, and who shared their stories with me, it was at that point of marriage often that their doubts grew and that those doubts could no longer be contained. And they began to share those doubts with others, which legitimized for them that they were real and um. that they were valid um, and that they, at that they weren't crazy because they were having those doubts. Right. So doubting is a really broad spectrum, and I, I think this holds for many different communities where faith is always defined by doubts and moments of struggle, but the kind of doubt that actually disrupts whether you're willing to do religious practice, I think is very distinctive. Well, and hearing you say that, it makes it almost sound like there's a contagion concern that um, it, it, it could spread beyond the individual and their sort yes. of crisis and affect others. And then that yes. affects the community. And then there's the real big concern. Yes. And I think that's why um, some of the leadership and, and everyday people, too, are talking or have been talking about a crisis of faith because there's the sense, even though demographically they're actually a very robust community, um, there's a sense that there's a flood of people leaving or going off the derech or OTD. Mm. Um, and I think that's a real anxiety and has been for the past decade. So with that, I want to then um, ask you a bit about some things that the, some Hasidic leaders have said about the internet and mm -hmm. doubt, and, and this is central to your book about doubt in the digital age. So um, you write in the book, I'm going to quote here, that um, uh, some of the leaders of, of various communities warned that, quote, the internet was more dangerous to Jewish continuity than the Holocaust, and that some of them created a poster and an advertisement that said, quote, the Holocaust burned our bodies, but the internet burns our soul. So when I read those, you know, I can understand the concern that the internet would provide people with ideas about other ways to live. Um, but this comparison to the Holocaust seems more intense than that. And, and the suggestion that, you know, the future of, of Judaism or of the Jewish people um, is in greater jeopardy because of the internet than, than the Nazis and, and concentration camps. Yeah. So can you explain this, this fear and anxiety? I'm not even sure if those are quite the, the right word 
words about the internet among Hasidic leaders and help us make sense of what this Holocaust comparison is, is all about? Sure. I found that the Holocaust is often used as a metaphor um, in ultra-Orthodox communities for a threat to a certain religious way of life. Um, hmm. And I will say that initially, when I was sort of wrapping up my first fieldwork project in the late 90s, the internet was not that threatening, or not really any more threatening than any other technology. Hmm. Um, one of the interesting things to me about Hasidic Jews in particular is they have been quite open to different technologies if the content could be transformed, could be made Jewish, uh, or it could pretty easily be banned. So sure. audio cassettes, for example, could have Jewish music and uplifting um, inspirational le lectures. And so they have been embraced over time, but DVDs and even earlier VHS was not, and so those were banned. Hmm. But the internet was really different. It was a new, um, a new challenge in some ways to rabbinic authority and to the authority of the community in general because it couldn't consistently be made Jewish and it also couldn't be banned because so many small businesses really relied on it. Um, in um, the 2000s, the early to mid-2000s, there was an increasing number of um, ultra-Orthodox blogs. What was threatening about this group was that there were people gathering with life-changing doubt who were exchanging information, and it's not just information, they were creating social relationships um, with each other, mm -hmm. uh, but they were both really intimate relationships and yet anonymous. So there was both a publicness to them and a secrecy. Um, and that increasingly loud public became very threatening to the leadership of ultra-orthodoxy um, because there was a sense that there was people within um, who were critiquing the authority of ultra-orthodoxy but nobody really knew who they were because mm -hmm. they looked the same on the outside <laughs> right right and, which is what a double life person is or a hidden heretic or somebody who's in the closet another term that gets used um, and hmm. so People became, I think, leaders, and not only rabbinic leaders, but people who are called askanim, like activists, self-appointed activists, became concerned that what they had more, um, what they used to rely on in order to make sure that people were actually practicing the outside, how people looked, right. was no longer a reliable gauge of what people uh, were feeling on the inside. Right. And that is where one of my findings is a real shift to a, a, a concern with interiority, how people are feeling and thinking on the hmm. inside. I mean, there's so many times when I hear this and, and what I read in the book that it sounds to me familiar with evangelical Protestantism, this focus yes. on the interior and the faith as what needs to be cultivated, which to me sounds so different than the assumption of what Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews would be doing with a focus on, um, you know, practice uh, as, as the yes. primary thing. So that's a huge shift for me that I find very interesting. Yeah, I found that really compelling too because everything that I had worked on in my first book project was about the value, especially for young children, of practice. Do it and the right feelings will come. Hmm. Here, ultra-Orthodox Jews were continuing to practice, at least in public, even though they began to uh, increasingly violate many of those commandments in private with their friends. Um, but but that, that 
reliance on practice and its failure to actually cultivate the right feelings, I think uh -huh. was a really threatening moment. And yeah. the, internet, the internet supported that because it could be so both intimate and public. Right. So um, I think one question that some listeners might be having at this point is, you know, why didn't many of the people who you met who were frustrated and were having a crisis of faith and whatnot, why didn't they just leave? So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what are some of the obstacles to outright leaving? And sure. then, you know, why do some of the people that you met, why do they choose to stay? Sure. Um, so sometimes people do choose to leave, obviously. Sure. I found that usually those people are younger and it happens often right before marriage or in the very early years of marriage. The people, you know, where there are fewer people to, um, to hurt, basically. Sure, sure. Most of the people that I talked to, both men and women, were really reluctant to hurt their parents, hmm. their children, and their spouses. They, many people talked to me about how they would love to leave, but they knew that their leaving would actually really um, limit their children's chances if their children remained in their communities, uh, um, especially for arranged marriages, because right. it would mean that something was wrong with the family. Right. Um, they didn't want to hurt their spouses. Some of them loved them. Another issue is that men especially were not prepared to live outside of their communities. If men were Hasidic, they often weren't that fluent in English, although one of the signs of living a double life is actually gaining increasing English fluency because you're reading more uh -huh. in English. Uh -huh. um, but often uh, there's not much secular education in Hasidic boys' yeshivas. Hmm. Uh, very few get higher degrees. Uh, for women who had not been working, there was an issue of money and resources and an inability to... Um, to just you know break free and leave and there was also a great fear that for both men and women but especially for women um, that they would lose uh, their children in any divorce cases in general it was both an access of resources a lack of resources sure. um, a fear maybe one person wrote to me I have a quote from him in my book um, you know am I scared of the cold world out there yes I, I sure <laughs> am but I would leave if I could if it wouldn't break my parents hearts hmm. that's difficult I mean right and I'm sure all of those um, choices play out and they're both structural and then just intimate relationships that people yes. develop attachments to and, and become important and um, so I think then I want to make sure that we address another side to everything that we've talked about yes. so far. And that's um, something that you bring up in the book that Hasidic communities have actually, in many cases, done well in the United States. You yes. might say they flourished. So could you um, help explain to our listeners why you think Hasidic communities in the U.S. Ha have done so well? Yes, um, I, I actually found the crisis of faith or Amuna ironic, given that these communities are in fact flourishing. Yeah. Um, many of them came after the Holocaust in the 1950s, um, and they came both with the biblical mandate to be fruitful and multiply, but also with um, the kind of emotional goal of rebuilding what had been lost during the Holocaust. Mm. And one of the really interesting parts about these communities is um, they're not the Amish, you know, off, well, I guess the Amish are now kind of also involved in tourism, but they're not um, 
they're sometimes called enclave communities. I, I think that's a that's not exactly the right word okay. because they live right in the heart of the city, right? Right, right, right in right. Brooklyn. They're really savvy users of the resources of the city and the state. They know how to access um, things like Section 8 housing and food stamps. So they're able to use the resources of the city. They, you know, go to um, they go to Prospect Park when we're not in a lockdown during right, a pandemic. Right, right. You know, they they rent bikes and bike around or go rowboating. They ride the Staten Island ferry. You're seeing them in the subway. Yes, yes. But despite that, they are able, I think a huge part because they have their own socializing institutions. They have their own schools. They have their own grocery stores. Um, they have their own um, even emergency corps, mm -hmm. where they create another life inside the city. So they are able to use the resources of the city, the funding of the city. They vote. Um, they're very active politically in terms of protecting their communities and supporting them. Um, and yet they're able to build this kind of city within a city um, with its own set of moral values and its own goals for hmm. what matters. Right, right, right. And I think one of the things that I liked in your book was that you bring up that this sort of fits with the ways that the U.S. understands itself as, you know, local governments not overstepping yes. the bounds to stop religious freedom and that that allows Hasidic Jews something that they had not had in many places in Eastern Europe before coming here. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I, I meant to say that as well, um, that really it's ironic because they don't necessarily value religious pluralism and tolerance. <laughs> um, and yet that is what has enabled them to build their communities right, so right. strongly here. So one final thing I want to make sure that we talk about today is that Netflix recently found success with their series Unorthodox, which is partly based on Deborah Feldman's best-selling memoir about leaving the Satmar Hasidic community in Brooklyn. So I'd love to hear from you. How do you make sense of people's interest, um, especially among non-Jews, in stories about people who leave Hasidic communities? Yeah, I've been really interested in that. Um, and it's not just unorthodox. I mean, there's a there's a big market for memoirs that have come out recently um, mm -hmm. about about those who have left. And yeah, there are a series of both fiction and nonfiction films. Um, I think it's partly voyeuristic, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, taking a look into a closed community is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, I think... Sometimes these kinds of shows and unorthodox reinforces certain secular stereotypes about certain kinds of religious orthodox communities hmm. and, and reinforce the narratives that we, and I include myself in this, that we tell ourselves about things like freedom and choice yeah. Yeah. and independence. Um, I do think unorthodox doesn't show a part of life in these communities that I heard a lot about, which is... Um, and that many double lifers shared with me too, which is the kind of warmth um, hmm. and the sense of shared purpose, and the, again, the close extended families, and maybe that sense of sureness. Yeah, I like that. And I think, you know, you're right. I've seen people post on Facebook things about. Um, 
the community that like what you said, it's sort of, it, there are some ways in which people see it and it reaffirms their own standing as not part yes. of one of those communities and, and then overlooks the ways in which we're all subject to lots of gender regulations and other yes. forms of cultural expectations. It's not just Hasidic women who face pressures to have children and exactly. be mothers. Um, but I think that that can get lost sometimes when we consume these types of stories about people who leave the communities. Yeah, and, and you know, they're told often by people who have had really negative experiences. It would take something pretty pretty difficult and challenging to to force somebody to leave because that's a really difficult thing to do. Hmm. Um, I think leaving those kinds of communities is takes real strength um, and and courage in some ways, and yet I think it's it's very bittersweet, and it's not a simple leaving and a break. Um, as my work shows, there's a there's a lot of back and forth, and a lot of kind of yearning for what's familiar and known, and yet also a curiosity about the new, and that's a, a balancing thing that goes on there. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, that is all the time we have for today. So I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Ayala Fader, and as always, our production editor, Anna Donch. Check out an excerpt from Dr. Fader's new book, Hidden Heretics, Jewish Doubt in the Digital Age in the upcoming summer issue of The Revealer. And you can purchase Hidden Heretics wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our fifth episode next month. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org. 